and it was pretty clear to me that there was a gap in the conference market for this uh, information that uh, would prove very valuable. So you were interested in what learning or, or kind of generating this conference just as a like a personal learning as well and then obviously to help other people along as well? Certainly, but I think primarily to be able to to uh, spread the word throughout the, the exploration community uh, about uh, the new discoveries that were being made uh, ultimately not only in Australia but throughout the world. That was Keith Yates. And hopefully this gives you some insight into how the New Gen Gold Conference came about. Find out more about the conference by going to their website, newgengold.com. I'm Ahmad and this is Exploration Radio. Mesa was enacted to settle the land claims of native people who have lived here for generations, as well as clear the way for the state to build the Trans-Alaska Pipeline. As the original residents, Alaska Native people wanted to ensure they would continue to have access to their territorial lands for future generations. Their claim to these lands had remained unresolved for a century after the U.S. purchased Alaska from Russia until 1971, when ANCSA was signed into law by President Richard Nixon, giving title to more than 40 million acres and a payment of nearly a billion dollars to the new Native corporations. The development of 12 regional Alaska Native corporations and more than 200 village corporations was an idea aimed at spurring economic opportunity and prosperity for Alaska's first people. Job creation, education funding, and control over tribal lands were a big part of the plan. So how well has it worked in nearly five decades? The headquarters of many Native corporations can be seen throughout Anchorage, and today the ANCs are multi-billion dollar enterprises with business interests across Alaska, the lower 48, and numerous other countries. This episode of Exploration Radio brought to you by the Australian Institute of Geoscientists and the Minerals Council of Australia. Find out more about them on our website, explorationradio.com. Hi, my name is Ahmad, and welcome to Exploration Radio. Here is an introduction to our guest this week. Take it away. Thank you very much, Michelle. Our next speaker, I've got a, a, quite a resume here. He told me I could just introduce him as the dude from Toke that runs Doyon, but I'm going to actually, he's quite an impressive resume, and I'm, uh, he's going to have to suffer through me reading through uh, Aaron Shutt is the president and CEO of Doyon Limited. He's responsible for the day-to-day -day business operations of the Doyon family of companies. He's worked at Doyon since 2006. Prior to being named president and CEO, he served as senior vice president and the chief operating officer from 2008 to 2011. He clerked for the Alaska Supreme Court Justice Alex Brin after graduating from Stanford Law School. Prior to joining Doyon in 2006, Aaron was an attorney at the Anchorage offices of the national firms Sanofsky Chambers, Soski Miller, Munson LLP, and Heller Ehrman LLP, where he represented tribal and ANCSA corporation interests in transactional and business matters. He's a Koyakin Athabaskan, was born in Anchorage, and yes, he is a dude from Toke. So, welcome, Aaron. Welcome to Expression Radio, Aaron. Thank you. Glad to be here. So there's a few things that we want to talk to you about. The obvious way that we got to you is through Tony Rader, who we interviewed on this uh, show as well. And he talked about the fact that he has this partnership with you guys. So, yeah, so he runs a junior exploration company and they have this partnership with you guys. Yeah. So first of all, I want to start off by, can you tell us what you do? So you work for an organization called Doyon. Can you talk to a little bit about what you do and, and who is Doyon or what, what does it involve? What type of organization is it? Yes. So... For those in other parts of the world, we're a fairly different type of entity than normal corporation or an Aboriginal group in other parts of the world. So the U.S. Congress to settle Aboriginal land claims in Alaska tried a novel experiment in 1971, the Alaska Native Claims Settlement Act, which created 12 land-based regional corporations that are chartered under state of Alaska law, and we have certain federal law aspects and, and then normal state law aspects to our corporation. And each Alaska native that was alive on December 19th, 1971, 
mm-hmm. got a hundred shares of stock. And so Doyon is the regional corporation for interior Alaska. We're headquartered in Fairbanks. Okay. We're mostly the Alaska, different Alaska Native groups. We're mostly Athabascan. Okay. Not wholly, mostly culturally, ethnically Athabascan, which is a, a large indigenous group across North America, starting from our part of the region down through Canada. The Diné people, the Navajo people are also Apaches or similar cultural linguistic heritage as us. So it's a big group across North America, but our part of the world, we have six subgroups of different types of Athabascans and I'm Koyakon by birth and Upper Tanana by culture and heritage where I grew up. Mm-hmm. So I grew up the Tanana River almost at the border with the Yukon territories in a little town called Toke. Okay. So Doyon, we had 9,061 shareholders originally. Congress amended the act to allow people born after 1971 to get enrolled and Doyon did that as soon as the corporation was allowed to. So I was not born before 1971. Mm-hmm. So I got my shares in 1992 when the Congress had amended the act. So now we have about 20,400 shareholders. Mm-hmm. In Congress vision was to have a for-profit entity that ran businesses and developed natural resources on their own lands here in Alaska. So we also have 12 and a half million acres of entitlement. Okay. And that's land, the proportion to the organization. Is that right? Yeah. We were able to reselect about 10% of the region that was ours before other people showed up yep. in the 1800s. Yeah which our region is about the size of France and the external boundaries. And we have that 12 and a half million acres within it. So it's about 140, 150 million acres in total. And we've got a little under 10% of it. Okay. And we do in our business segments, we do a lot of oil field contracting in Alaska. That was a big industry in the 1970s and eighties or a new and very rapidly growing industry when Doyon was created. So we got into that space and we have a very successful Arctic oil and gas drilling company, pipeline construction engineering, the camps people live in, we own a pipeline. And then we did, we got into government contracting a little later when again, the Congress made some programs available to Alaska native corporations. And so we have the largest privatized utility system in the department of defense in Alaska here on the army posts yeah wow and we do a lot of construction across the country for the federal government and a couple it companies as well so one question i have is obviously is is there any restriction on the type of business you can't do are there certain things that are you're mandated against doing obviously illegal things yeah let's take those aside but anything else any other businesses that you're not allowed no the, the congress didn't have any restrictions in the law and our corporate documents don't restrict us from doing anything, but there are practically a lot of things we wouldn't have considered and don't consider. Like rice farming, for example, is probably not a venture you're probably going to be too aggressive in. Yeah, that's something we're looking at. And then things like alcohol distribution or whatever, like we're not getting into the cannabis industry or things like that. Yep. And we're pretty disciplined on what we're in now. We grew up kind of as a resource extraction service contractor and have had a lot of exploration on our land. So we've kind of a big part of our business is in that space just as a natural fit. And and we really try to stick to what we do well and do more of it. Mm -hmm. And then we've tried some new things. So the utility was a brand new thing to us. We decided we really like utilities. So we've been growing that portfolio slowly. Okay. So I want to dig into a little bit about how you get into Doyon. But you know, the way you describe it, is it fair to say that you're more of a, you know, the membership is more of a cooperative to some degree. When you're born, you get shares and then, yeah, it's kind of done. So not only are you a shareholder in the company, but you also then get to set the direction. So you as a person that runs the organization are beholden to not just yourself because you're a shareholder, but to basically your whole community who are all shareholders. Yeah, all my friends and relatives are my bosses, indirect. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. So do you have external shareholders? No, no. Well, we have the original shares. You can't buy or sell any shares in Doyon. So they're not traded. They're not listed. They're not any of those things. But some of them, the original ones, 
transfer upon death. So we have a few non-native shareholders because they're the spouse or heir of a deceased shareholder. And there are also ways that you can gift shares to close relatives under the act. Okay. And so we have a few of those as well. And so a famous example for us is Congressman Don Young from Alaska, who ah, yep. is the longest serving Republican congressman in the history of the Congress. He's a Doyon shareholder, even though he's non-native. So his spouse was a Doyon shareholder. And when she passed away, he inherited some shares from her. Yeah. Okay. So Aaron, you're a, a lawyer by background. Have you looked at other structures of native title organizations or Aboriginal organizations? What do you think are the pros and cons of this setup? Because the Doyon setup is quite unusual in that sense. Yeah, and it's quite different. So when I was practicing law, I was a corporate attorney here in the U.S. About half the time I spent representing solely tribal entities and Alaska Native Corporations. A lot of my work was outside of Alaska, so I had quite a bit of experience in the reservation system. Which is kind of the more common system when people kind of think about, particularly in the U.S. and North America. Yeah, in North America, you really think about that in Canada and the U.S. with the reserves and reservations in the United States. And they do have corporate entities. There are some different federal chartered corporations that were first created in the 1930s. Mm -hmm. But they're governed by the tribes more typically of the way other tribes operate as well with the elected tribal councils and that political system. In ours, there isn't really the political system because we don't, we're not a government. Doyon is not a tribal government. We have tribes in Alaska in addition to native corporations. We share our membership with a number of federally recognized tribes in the interior, but we're wholly separate. We don't have any governmental authority. Okay. So a lot of tribes in the United States have focused on economic development around gaming and larger scale land use of their larger landowner, but their lands are generally held in trust by the United States, which especially historically meant having to get approval of the Bureau of Indian Affairs or Department of Interior on anything you're going to do. That's right. Our lands are fee lands, and we don't have to ask any governmental authority permission to use, develop, manage our lands other than generally applicable permitting processes, for example. Mm -hmm. So it's a pretty different setup. And there's also the mindset that goes with it. They told our folks in 1971, create a for-profit enterprise and go forth and grow this enterprise and provide economic and social benefits to your shareholders who are Alaska Natives through the business. Mm -hmm. So it's a business framework, whereas most around the world and certainly in the United States and Canada, other Aboriginal entities are coming from the government perspective. They may have businesses, but it's managed and thought of through the government lens. We're wholly through the business lens. That's right. You did a perfect job of explaining that because I think that's a major important distinction in the fact that in a lot of ways, you are the architect of your own success or demise in a lot of ways about what business ventures you go down the path of. Whereas the opposite one is where to a large degree, kind of civil funding that makes a lot of those kind of entities viable, you know, like kind of the gaming entities. Obviously, the government depends what view you take, but you know, the government doesn't tend to be great at running businesses. So they have a very narrow kind of band of what they allow people to do. And hence, those organizations only play in a few small business avenues. But I think what's interesting doing the research in Doyon is like you mentioned, you are across the board in a lot of different kind of things. So as long as you can activate a return back to investors. You know, it's a business proposition that's interesting to you guys. Yeah, it's been a very successful model. It didn't start that way. The 1970s and 80s were a very difficult period for the Alaska Native Corporations generally and, and Doyon specifically. I wasn't working for Doyon back then, but I've certainly learned the history over the 15 years I've worked for Doyon. Do you think that was because of the terrible kind of, you know, the 70s and 80s weren't a great environment for kind of the resources and energy sector? 
And obviously, Toyon would have been set up, and I'm just assuming this, but a lot of the businesses would have been somewhat related to kind of the resources and energy sector. So, yeah, like all your eggs are probably in a basket that was economically struggling in, in that couple of decades. Yeah, and the history of Alaska, we're such a new state with regards to, you know, Aboriginal people interacting in the Western business model that our original board and leadership, they would literally change out of their snowshoes and trapping clothes and go to a business meeting a few hours later and didn't have, they were very smart people with all the best intentions in mind, but they didn't know how to assess the risks and have all the right relationships to make the decisions and protect the corporation from things that were probably predictable to some. And then there was, like you said, the resource crashes in the early 1980s that kind of hit a lot of Mm-hmm. Alaska-based corporations, native and non, pretty hard. Mm-hmm. Our economy was kind of in tatters there for a few years in the early 80s. And so we rode that wave down to the trough as well. So we survived and learned from it and have had a lot of steady success since then. But it was a very trying time in the late 70s through about 1984, 85. So you made this comment before around the fact that, you know, like basically most of the shareholders of Doyon would have very few degrees of separation between each of them. Does that pose a challenge when you're running an organization like that? Oh, it definitely does. There, there are huge benefits. We know who we work for. And everyone has skin in the game, which is important as well. People have skin in the game. You know, you see the result when you put on a training program and they might be children of people you know or even relatives and you see the progress for those individuals and you know what success looks like back to our community we can quantify our dividends and our scholarships we provide on an annual basis and they're large numbers so that's really gratifying to and you don't even have to be a Doyon shareholder or Alaska native to really appreciate what we're doing for our community at the company but then the flip side of course is it's hard to work for your own people sometimes. <laughs> yeah. As anyone that's worked with family, you know, there's positives and negatives. It's a bit like a family business or a cooperative in a small town. Like, you know, you stub your toe, everybody knows it, or a perception about something that happened and, and you got to explain it to your auntie at the grocery store the next day, whatever. <laughs> so, yeah, it, it's definitely got a few drawbacks here and there that you have to manage through. Mm-hmm. So obviously, I can kind of see that the way the Adonion was set up, you know, there were some positives in the way that you can kind of amalgamating different tribes, you know, even though there's probably a majority in there. Did that pose any issues? I guess the question I'm asking is, that, you know, when they kind of drew the boundaries of what became Doyon, the lands that became Doyon, mm-hmm. was that well handled? You know, do you think that it led to a point where you didn't have kind of disparate groups with disparate, with different priorities about what they wanted? It definitely did. So the earlier days, there was a lot of, we call it upriver, downriver is the shorthand in the Doyon region. And in our region, the the river is the Yukon River. Mm -hmm. And so the different groups, historically, there was a lot of economic competition among the various subgroups and tribes. And And certainly with our neighbors from other ethnic groups, uh, Inupiaq and Yupik and the other boundaries. So there was a lot of that competition and history of sometimes having wars in Alaska. That wasn't too long in the past. <laughs> so that those early couple decades, there was that was present as well. That has changed quite a bit. It's not nearly as important an issue where you're from in the region these days in our election process for our board or certainly our employment processes for who works where. There are some legacies, some parts of our region, people got into different industries, mining, for example, there was a lot of placer mining in interior Alaska in different parts. So there's a history of placer mining. There's a more of a acceptance and affinity towards current mining exploration or mining development. And then certain parts of our region took to the oil field contracting more than others historic in the early days of Doyon. 
in that legacy, you know, we're like three generations in sometimes now of, of employees at our growing company, same family, grandfather, father, son, and it's mostly men in that industry, some women, but mostly men. So you see that, but again, it's really changed and become less important as people have moved around a lot too. So a lot of our population is now urban Alaska, Fairbanks and Anchorage rather than our village communities. So when we were chartered, we were about two thirds in our rural communities still, and a third urban Alaska, mostly Fairbanks. Now we're just a quarter in our rural historic communities quarter Fairbanks, a quarter the rest of Alaska, and a quarter outside of Alaska. Yeah, wow. Okay. Geez, that's really changed quite a lot in a, in a very short amount of time. Yes, 50 years, it's dramatically changed in the demographics. The reason why I ask that question is like, you know, in a normal organization with shareholders, obviously there's a natural kind of turnover or attrition of shareholders. But in your organization, the challenge is that, yeah, once you're in, you're kind of in. So whatever internal conflict that might be in kind of different groups of shareholders, and in your case, there could be people from different tribes or different regions or et cetera. So that's something that you're going to kind of have to handle because people are in for essentially for life, really, in one manner or another. You, know, you mentioned that shares change hands and stuff, but you know, like you wouldn't think that they're going to change hands. Very minimal amount. Yeah, that's why. Yeah. So, yeah, so it's an interesting kind of challenge that you guys as management have to handle in the fact that any internal conflict or any conflict has to stay internal and you have to figure out a way of managing it to some degree. Yeah, and we do have to do that on an ongoing basis on one issue or other. Mm -hmm. Our shareholders are essentially equal in their voting power, though. That's one big difference between most other corporations. There's larger shareholders. 20% or 50% or even 5%. Ours are, you have 100 shares and 20,000 cousins have each 100 shares too. So it's not like there's any consolidated power center. Mm -hmm. So in that sense, we're a bit more like a small town in our elections, a town of 20,000 electing a 13 member board of directors. Yeah, I think that's a good way to kind of describe it. So I want to kind of change. So, you know, you mentioned all these kind of different businesses that you work in. Obviously, where you guys are, I made the flipping joke before that, you know, you're probably not doing a lot of rice farming. So there's probably a few kind of industries that you have to kind of corner in. And one of them being mining and kind of resources space. What's Doyon's experience been in the, the mining and kind of mineral exploration space? Well, we selected of the 12 and a half million acres, we probably selected four or five million specifically for resource potential. And some of it was oil and gas, so maybe a million and a half for oil and gas potential. And there's some work going on currently on, in that space. I was just out in one of our rural communities last week as an exploration, summer exploration programs kind of kicking off. It's exciting times. And then a lot of it was gold properties mm -hmm. and some base metals and some other resources, but mostly gold. And that's kind of scattered all over the region. There's some big pockets in the 40 miles, so the eastern interior near where I grew up. And then our southwest part of our region in the Mystery Mountains near the McGrath area. And then the northern, kind of north central part of our region. Those would be the areas where we selected a little bit more than other parts for mineral potential. And we've had a long history of Sometimes major companies doing exploration, especially in the 70s and 80s, but a lot of junior companies come to Alaska and they explore both state, federal, and native corporation lands. We have a lot of programs that would have gone farther in a few places that are defined resources that would be mines, if not for the lack of infrastructure across Alaska and specifically to our region. There are just very few roads real power and telecommunications is often dozens if not hundreds of miles away so <laughs> you, you really need to find a world-class resource to make it economic in in our part of alaska in most cases so doyon has a history in this sense of dealing with kind of exploration and mining companies how would you grade our industry compared to other industries say like the utilities or defense or 
building civil works like pipeline. Yeah, like how do you grade mining in the exploration industry and how they deal with Doyon? Well, every industry and their interactions with native people in Alaska have gone through painful early days and some of them are have gotten quite a bit better. Others are still learning. Like the federal government was an absentee landlord after the Russian purchase for a hundred years and then went through a lot of pain and suffering. And, and we're still dealing with them with a lot of contaminated sites and mm -hmm. things that are in our communities and in our lands that they gave back to us. So that one's, you know, had its challenges. It's gotten better. Minerals, there were a lot of progressive companies, but they had a lot of work to do in the early days. And I say progressive in the sense that they tried to bring like Doyon along as they did exploration in our region, helping us develop our businesses and partnering on training and, and other opportunity, employment opportunities for Doyon shareholders, even if it wasn't for us, if it was for exploration which I'm not sure that was super common around the world in the 70s and 80s, but it, it sure helped that we were a big landowner back then, I think, that they had, their eyes were large on the potential. And so they did some things that probably made them a little bit uncomfortable coming to Alaska. But then there have been major improvements in the last decade or so. And as companies come in even like these junior Canadian companies like Tectonic, where there's a lot more interaction engagement with us, with our communities, with our shareholders, and understanding, having the community understand and accept what's going to happen before it happens, not explain what happened to you after it's done. So has that been the improvement in that they are just more open about communicating with you guys? Whereas before it was maybe a bit guarded for whatever reason? Yeah, I think in the Western U.S., a lot of exploration was done, including in Alaska, on government land. Yep. And so, you know, when you take a lease from the government, you pay them your lease fee and you file whatever report at the end of the year, and that's the extent of your interaction. You're dealing with the native people where that's their backyard, that's their homeland, and it's actually their land. You better figure out how to talk to them a little better. Because we're going to be here for a long time and we all have the same success, but how do you inform and engage communities so that they're your best employees and supporters rather than your advocates against your projects and permitting processes and shareholder meetings and things? Yeah, you made the point before, sometimes people engaged native title groups, particularly too late in the piece. The perception I always get is that, you know, at that point, the relationship is almost already at a level where it's kind of fractured. You know, it's not maybe not antagonistic, but it's already kind of fractured because you've ignored them or you've ignored kind of some aspects of that relationship for so long. And then when you desperately need them, then you try to kind of repair it really, really quickly. So the reason why we kind of talk to Tony and other guys at Tectonic is, you know, they've taken the approach that they're going to do a lot of that land access engagement stuff even before they pick any ground or even before they look at projects, which I think is quite interesting in the fact that they are acknowledging that that is a risk right through the piece. So let's eliminate it as early as possible or let's handle it, not eliminate it, but handle it very early in the piece. Yeah, and, and our experience... There are a lot of misperceptions, especially about mining exploration. So people will assume that it's going to become a mine just because geologists are on the ground with, especially if they have a drill and, you know, on site there, people think it'll be a mine and then they visualize a giant open pit mine. And then they hear these horror stories about the worst examples in the world. And they assume that's going to be their backyard. And so that's one of the things that we've, seen early on is to educate and temper expectations that it's on that side, you know, we're pretty honest, like it's very unlikely we're going to find a resource in rural Alaska that will meet the current economic hurdles, right? We just know that. On the other side, we also don't want our communities and individuals getting so excited that they make major investments thinking that the activity will go on and that they'll be 
making a living doing the support in these rural areas because that also has proven to be a pretty bad model for building your business. <laughs> that's right. If it's something you already do somewhere else and you can bring it to your own backyard, that's great. If you're making major investments in equipment and people to, to get into a business that has a possibly very short shelf life, that's an expectation manager we frequently engage in as well. You made this point and you know, we kind of covered this in our pre-interview. If I take the view of companies on this side of the fence, companies have these misconceptions about native title groups that, yeah, they don't want progress. They'll never want it to become a mine, et cetera, et cetera. But what I found interesting is the misconceptions on your side of the fence as well, where people are, yeah, like the misconception that if people show up, they're like, oh, great. When's the mine going to get set up? In what, three years, five years? So they're making decisions based on certain misconceptions. Uh, which inevitably lead to a you know, bad outcome on kind of both sides. Yeah, that's where just that dialogue, you got to get in early and you, you've got to hear, hear out the people that don't want you there. And you'll be able to convince some of them that it'll be okay. Not all of them, probably. And then you've got to temper the folks that come to the community meeting so excited that something's going to happen and provide jobs and economic opportunity when most likely it's going to be short-lived. So do you see yourself, your role being that, being that kind of mediator or almost arbitrator in the middle where you're trying to handle expectations of both the companies coming into your land as well as your shareholders that are wanting that land to be utilized in a certain way? It's definitely a role we're in right now, myself and my executive team. I'm going to a community meeting on this coming Saturday and with some tectonic, or at least one tectonic person to talk about exploration that's near their community. And like I said, I was in an oil and gas exploration in a different community last week, talking to them about what's going to happen this summer and trying to further that conversation about what might happen down the road there. So it definitely is something we spend time on. Yeah. Okay. You mentioned that you get like obviously quite a large uh, range of companies coming to you from majors to uh, juniors. And there's also a little bit of a geographic spread in that, you know, there's a few kind of Australian or non-North uh, American companies working on Doyon land as well. Do you find their approach maybe geography-wise a little bit different? Do you find like companies from Australia have a different approach or companies maybe that are more South American-based or African-based, do they have a different approach in some ways? It really depends on the people. So I don't get a, usually I don't get a good sense of the corporate culture and especially in a larger company because it really depends on where the person has been. So if the person running the program or the little team that's here, maybe they've already been in Alaska for 10 years and they're just new to our part of Alaska. Well, that's a pretty easy introduction. A lot of Alaska native people or our rural part of our state's pretty similar these days even with the different ethnicities. If a person's only worked in South America or only worked in Africa, then they're going to they're gonna have a bit of a learning curve here. The world's a little bit different everywhere and people's expectations and cultural traditions and things are just different enough that that's, you know, it takes a bit of time. So it's really personal more than... The company structure, so to speak. Yeah, in our experience. Now, we haven't gotten to the point of a real mine being developed or a real oil field on our land. So that I think would be a little different. You'd get to know the company and its culture a little better if you get to those points. Yeah. Okay. So we talked about this uh, during the pre-interview. You made this point that it really depends on the individual. And I think one of the points about where you have this kind of breadth of experience, if you worked in a few different kind of places, particularly dealing with local communities, and, you know, I think one of the perceptions that kind of comes out is this understanding that that people that have a stronger connection to the land will look at their interaction with the land much differently than you will. Yeah. So we talked about this during the pre-interview for all intents and purposes. I'm a city slicker. So, you know, so my connection to my land is not the same as local communities or someone yeah. from a local community. And that, I think, misunderstanding or maybe lack of acknowledgement is something that is usually goes down the path of being a disastrous relationship. Yeah, and it's surprising to me. My wife 
half Australian. I've spent a little bit of time in some Aboriginal communities in Australia, and it's surprising to me how comfortable it is, even though culturally they're very different in their climate and geography and the places I've been in those communities is very different than Alaska, but it's very comfortable and feel quite at home quite quickly. Unlike you, if I go to the city, I'm feeling out of my helmet. So I do hear you on that. I think that's definitely something that people who spent a lot of time or grew up in a rural, especially Aboriginal community, anywhere in the world would, would integrate pretty quickly into our part of rural Alaska. And again, back to Tectonic, one of the things I think that made them so apt to work in our part of the region is the executive team had worked just over the border in the Yukon. And those folks actually are at the Baskin people, same geography. The line doesn't mean anything to most of us. And it's just right there. So they, they had that decade of work. And we knew that, like, People can talk to their relatives across the border and say, how did these guys do? Or what did you guys learn? Or, you know, how'd it go? That's right. Yeah. And, and made it a little easier for all of us. I've thought about this. And I think the difference really comes from when you deal with local communities, you need to know the difference between a valley and the valley. <laughs> yeah. You know, like, yeah, there's a yeah. massive difference between those two statements. Like I grew up in a city, so to me, living on a house on one street, you know, if I could move to a bigger house on another street, I don't even think about, you know, moving to a different suburb, I don't even think about it. But for people that come from the land, like moving from a valley to another valley is a massive thing because that's their valley, you know, that's the valley for them. And I think that idea is a little bit hard to understand if you don't have that kind of connection to the land. For sure. It's super important to have that concept in mind as you go into each community. They have their use areas, they have their valley or their river, or whatever, their lake, whatever it is that is in that area that's their special places. They know it, it doesn't, you can't transplant them somewhere else. You can't ignore that concern wherever it is. We see that a lot. And I think you mentioned it in the pre-interview, you know, like that every shareholder in Doyon has their concept of God's country. Yes. So you have to kind of accept that when you're dealing with groups in that sense. Definitely. It's something we talk about frequently. So do you think that perception is getting better in, in the mining industry? I guess like we're making this whole thing about there seems to be a movement in the industry about license to operate and you know, sustainability and community engagement tends to be a massive piece. Do you think that's getting better? Is that on the better trend? I definitely think so, as we see other companies doing exploration in Alaska and in our region as well. There's a much better understanding that it's important to do, important to do early. There are consultants, including Athabasca, Alaska Native consultants, that kind of specialize in helping these folks get introduced to the communities. And it, it might be a large civil project even, mm -hmm. not just mining, that you're trying to understand the concerns of those people in that area and which ones you can ameliorate and which ones you just have to figure out what else to do. That's right. Which ones are you know, honestly valid versus some people will make a strong statement about something and it just turns out it's in a sense political or or made for a different reason than a heartfelt concern so you've got to try to sort through all that as well mm -hmm. so one last thing i wanted to talk about is like i listened to this interview that you and tony did at pdac i think it was last year and you made this comment that i guess the question i think was along the lines of how do you think companies could improve the way they're doing and you made this comment that you want companies to be brave. Can you explain a little bit? Because I think your comments after that were really, really interesting. So why do mining companies or exploration companies have to be brave? You have to be brave in the sense that people might yell at you and a whole community might not want you there. But if you're committed to that project in that area, you've got to figure out how to still talk to them how to convey the necessary information. And, and we at Doyon, we have groups within our corporation, our own shareholders, sometimes our own relatives that don't wanna see certain things happen. And we're not there to convince them that they're wrong and we're right. 
but you have to be brave enough to go to that community meeting and hear one speaker after another tell you what awful people you are if that's the way you're going. And so if it's a mining exploration company, they still have to be brave enough to show up, hear that. And, you know, a lot of us, me included, we're STEM people, we're engineers or geologists or whatever. It's not our normal routine to have 10 people in a row scream at us for an hour sometimes. But, but that's really what it takes to establish those relationships. And then really the important thing is in our experience in rural Alaska, and I can't at all speak for the rest of the world, but the people appreciate you going and they know that, that you're going to take maybe some verbal abuse and it's not going to be any fun and it may make you sweat but they appreciate you coming to their community and hearing them out. Mm -hmm. It's a really important thing to be brave enough to do that. Do you think that that bravery is a conduit to essentially building trust? Isn't that what it really is? It's one test on that path to trust. So even if they disagree with you, if they trust you, you have a much better relationship and place to deal with conflict than if they don't know you or they distrust you. So that's another important concept that we try to internally and as we bring in other groups, external explorers is like, just tell people exactly what it is. Don't try to sugarcoat it. Don't try to answer it in a way you think is going to minimize the immediate conflict or follow-up question. Just tell them. Mm -hmm. If they say, is there a risk of X, you say, if there is, you say, yes, there is. It's small, but there is that risk. Mm -hmm. Again, are we going to get rich? And you say, no, probably not. <laughs> yeah, there's a small chance of that as well, but let's yeah. not bank on it. Yeah. I guess what I found really interesting about that comment is that I'm not trying to like rag on, uh, you know, kind of corporate community people, but yeah, in the current world where you want the outcome to be understood before you go and deal with different groups, I just see that being a barrier. Like if you thought that there was going to be a chance that things can't go right, then most people from a corporate kind of sense would see that as a massive risk. Mm -hmm. But I think what they're kind of missing is the risk on the other side, that if you don't do it, that, you know, that risk will just show up you know, at some other point along the line. That's right. That's exactly well stated how we see that. You're not avoiding the risk by avoiding talking about the issue. You're just pushing it down the road and probably making it worse because you don't have the relationship with those same people. And when it comes crunch time, when it's a permit or a, some other approval you need and, and like nobody believes what you have to say. I think a point that Tony kind of made as well is that if you go to the first meeting and people go, yeah, the temperature of the room is that nobody wants you there, then yeah, you have to make a decision whether you think you can, can you actually relatively change their mind? And if you can't, then maybe you should go somewhere else. But if you never hear that feedback 10 years down the road when you have this great project, and then if you get the temperature of the room that people don't want you there, well, what are you going to do now? Not only are you going to toast like investor money, but yeah, you're going to look like a bit of a muppet as well because you haven't solved this problem. Those risks seem to be growing in the U.S. as you look at the Dakota Access Pipeline and this other one through yeah. Minnesota that, you know, in, in some cases they were fully permitted and now there's a question and under half under construction, like half done and there's a question of whether you can complete it. Like that's a terrible place to be. Like that's a poster child for getting that work done early. And in our case in, in rural Alaska, we're trying to not do projects or have people come in and explore we, where we know they're not welcome. Because again, all you're doing is just fighting that fight over and over. And we've watched like the pebble mine out in Southwest Alaska that had 20 years almost now of constant battle and, and looks very uncertain despite certainly hundreds of millions of dollars being invested in it. So that's our, our local, in, in, you know, Arctic National Wildlife Refuge is another one where there's been tons of advocacy against it. Some find Kaktovik the closest native people for it. It's, it's just a huge challenge. Like you've got to measure your investor risk is not just geologic there. 
That's right. Yeah, like I think one thing that we can be critical of our industry is that for a long, long time, I think we just measured the the technical opportunity or the technical risk at the expense of not really realizing a lot of the non-technical risks. So I think that perception is changing now that, yeah, you need to take the non-technical risk on as well, particularly when you're going to places like Alaska, which still have this strong connection between local communities and the land. Yeah, for sure. So Aaron, so we're pretty much at the end of our interview. So we always ask people two questions at the end. So the first one is, what is something that you think needs to die in mining? Something that you think we need to get rid of out of our industry? I guess the one thing we see that's always present in our discussions is that flip at near end of mine life to some other company that has many fewer resources to do the reclamation and, and other work that needs to happen at the end. And you see it in oil and gas too. We don't really face that at Doyon because on our land we have our agreements with mining explorers and would let us prohibit that transaction. But I think that's something that we see in the industry that somehow we got to do a better job addressing it. Do you mean the custodianship of the land that we've used and how we're actually going to do something with it afterwards? Yeah, the, the reclamation liabilities that are often oil and gas as well, all the resource industries, especially historically, they're not adequate and not well planned. And you flip it to the next company and they do less and then they flip it to another company and pretty soon there's like yeah i am so in saying that one question i had is how do you think we handle the that handover between companies like if i think about say an exploration project you know often it tends to be the case that you know a junior company comes in and does the initial exploration and then if it becomes something or a project at a certain scale then you know you're going to that company is either going to get swallowed or the project is going to get swallowed by a bigger company. How do you find that handover? Because, you know, you might have maybe a more intimate relationship with a small company, but then when it gets handed to a bigger company, you know, there is the potential for essentially things to be dropped along that process. So we have a little more control in our agreements, a little bit more of a right to veto so that we can make sure that the Financial resources at least are there. If we get to that point, we don't have anything that's even close to that in time right now, but that's the, the legal agreements are, are pretty strict on that front. Yeah, wow. That's an interesting way to kind of handle that. Yeah. But I mean, like, I'm not saying that it's good or bad. I think, you know, sometimes junior companies are not great at handling that relationship and then they're giving this bag to a bigger company, you know, with all of its problems. As an industry, I don't think we quite acknowledge how we should solve that. There is a potential for things to go wrong there. So the last question that we have is, conversely, what is something that you think uh, needs to stay in mining and exploration, something that's fundamental to our DNA that we shouldn't forget? Well, that's the, I, we really like the exploration because it's, I mean, mining makes the world go, right? And so we need these resources and they're out there and it's it, that search for them is fun. Like that's what we're trying to instill in a bunch of our young people. And a lot of our deals all require scholarships and training for our young people. And we like to see them get into the field and participate in that exploration so that they enjoy STEM careers, they spend time on our on our own lands looking for these various resources and hopefully make careers out of it. Mm -hmm. Since you said that, can I ask a question? So you talk to local communities, so you're talking to the younger generation that's coming up. Do you think that they find some level of, maybe angst is not the right word, but some level of kind of trepidation about the fact that should they stay to a more kind of traditional living off the land kind of lifestyle or do they go down the path of working in something like exploration and mining where they where they you know I guess they're still tied to the land but they're not necessarily it's not the substance in that sense because this is something that I guess I've found in certain programs is that you obviously want to hire as many the younger generation and kind of bring them up so they become more informed. But there's always this kind of conflict sometimes that's always been expressed to me from their side. Yeah, there's that conflict and some of it's education. 
Mm -hmm. So we don't have anyone living a truly traditional lifestyle anymore. We all use modern implements. We want our, we want to upgrade our telecom systems. We like planes and boats and most of our shareholders live in the city now. Most of our kids are growing up in the city. So that's another one. It's like, we need to get an economic base in our rural part of our region so that our people can stay in our homelands and not migrate further and further away from them. So that's part of that education. Part of the education is how much science has progressed our industries, how much safer they are for individuals and the environment than they were just a few years ago. And the, the horror stories are usually quite old. And those were true of all industries were much more dangerous than they are these days. So that's why. So it's just one of those things that you got to spend time and, and you want to create opportunities for our people. That's what our, our thing is. We want to create opportunities for our people. So a number of them are going to be in, in the resource industry. Mm -hmm. I guess, you know, like I just think from the company side, it's probably something we, you know, like we maybe not have utilized as much, you know, because when you're going into places like Alaska, the people there really want that relationship with kind of the land. And I think, yeah, we could have done maybe a better job of, like you said, educating the younger generation. It doesn't necessarily just have to be the younger generation, but anyone in those communities, because working on kind of exploration projects, they still can have that relationship with the land in slightly different way. But then it also gives them opportunities to kind of, and they can decide either they exercise the opportunity to stay there or, you know, they exercise the opportunity to go work somewhere else. And I've always kind of felt that, you know, maybe we could have done a better job of maybe pushing that a lot more that rather than just like bringing expats from anywhere, investing the time in, in people that are in local communities. Yeah, like particularly geology. I mean, geology is a science of the land. So if you kind of pass that on to someone that already has a relationship to a land, that can only be kind of a positive thing if it allows them other opportunities along the line. Great. So that's it, Aaron. Thanks a lot for joining us. Yeah. This was a great conversation. Really enjoyed it. This episode of Exploration Radio was brought to you by Ahmad Salim and Steve Beresford. Produced by Sean Jeffrey. Edited by Humayun Mir. And recorded remotely in June 2021. This episode was sponsored by the One to One Group and The Assay. Find out more about them on our website, explorationradio.com. If you like this podcast, then consider becoming a sponsor to help us continue producing more of this content. You can email us on info at explorationradio.com. You can also reach out to us on LinkedIn, Twitter, or Instagram. Until next time, let's keep exploring.